0: Welcome to Inspiring Progressive Business, a podcast series for SMEs. Join us for insights from inspirational business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts on key topics of importance to your business.
1: Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us on today's session. I'm Babitha Sharma, and I'm thrilled to be with you for what is undoubtedly going to be a really interesting panel discussion. Today's session is really going to be an opportunity to hear expert insights on the macroeconomic climate and trend predictions for a post-pandemic world. Now, I know we're not quite there yet, but there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So from HSBC, we have the global economist, James Pomeroy, Fred Newman, the co-head of Asian Economic Research for the Bank, Liz Martins is here, UK economist, and from the US, we have Ryan Wang. Thank you, all of you, for taking time out to be with us for the session today. And I know you're incredibly busy, so I really will jump straight in with my first question. And as I've just been saying, as we know, the last year has been completely unprecedented in every single way. So what have been some of the key changes that global economies have encountered? Uh, And what does this look like moving forward? So James, if I can, I'd love to start with you for your global perspective on this.
2: It's been clearly a quite traumatic year in terms of um, both the health situation and the economic situation. We've seen collapses in economic activity that I'm sure most of us could never have imagined, even a couple of years ago. And as economists also, it's broken all of our charts um, that we've used for years. We've now got to change our axes permanently. And although that's a very small takeaway from the pandemic, it's clearly something that we're going to live with in our professional career going forward. But when you then start to think about how things are going to recover across the world, we are expecting to see quite a varied recovery speed. And that's going to depend on a whole range of factors. It's going to be how quickly different economies are able to get the pandemic under control, how quickly they're able to vaccinate their populations. And in some parts of the world, that's unlikely to be until maybe the middle of next year or possibly even later. And of course, how quickly and willing governments are to open up their economies. And we can start to see this recovery. There's also then worth thinking about once economies are open, how quickly are people willing and able to spend any money? And what are they going to spend it on? And across the world, what we have seen in the course of the last 12 months is households, particularly high income households, accumulating quite a lot of savings. And so far, a lot of that's been spent on houses and doing up homes. That seems to be the story in pretty much every part of the world. But then what we could see in the next few months is how that changes. Do people go back to bars and restaurants? Do people go back out to seeing their friends, recreational activities, mass events? How quickly does the willingness to go back to those sort of activities come back? And then you've got the sort of further down the line, the big question about international travel, which is one that I think could be a lot slower to recover, partly because of borders staying closed and some parts of the world not being fully vaccinated, but also, I think there's going to be a little bit of caution. The idea that you might, may be a little bit uncertain about getting on a long haul flight, knowing that you could be either stuck somewhere or risk quarantining on your return. So it's a global economy that's going to recover. There's clearly going to be a lot of bumps ahead. And clearly, that pace of recovery is going to be quite divergent across the world.
1: You use the word caution. I think that's probably going to be the buzzword, really, because everybody's still trying to find their feet, aren't they, moving forward?
2: Most definitely. And there's growing evidence in some parts of the world that people love doing stuff. And we're going to see people flood back out to do things as quickly as possible. That has been the case in those parts of the world who have been quicker to reopen their economies. But there's some activities that people are going to hold a little bit of caution about doing. It's unlikely that we're all packing into the London tube later this year, because there's still going to be caution about doing some sorts of activities or our habits will have changed. And there's a lot of these trends that have probably been accelerated by the pandemic, both in terms of caution about the virus, but also us maybe realising that some of the things we were doing previously weren't the best way of doing things.
1: Liz, you know, when we think about the UK and Europe, how do you think that that perspective is going to translate now?
0: Yeah, I mean, the UK and Europe, like the rest of the world, had an incredibly tough 2020. Generally speaking, the more dependent you are on services, the worse the economic experience of the pandemic has been. So, if you look across the more industrial nations like Poland, which saw GDP only falling by just under 3%, Germany by over 5%. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the service-dependent economies like Spain, which fell 11%, and the UK, which fell 10%. You know, so it's quite a divergence in performance. And then, of course, as we've come into 2021, households and businesses have been incredibly frustrated because it's not back to normal. All the excitement around New Year that 2021 was going to bring better things. It's brought the vaccine, but it's also brought more COVID-19 cases and more lockdowns. Uh, But what I will say is that lockdown 2021 looks very different to lockdown 2020. So the example of the UK, in January, the gap between GDP in lockdown and pre-pandemic was about 7%. And that compares to a gap of over 20% in April 2020. So the economy, both the public and private sectors have really adjusted to the new conditions in a really quite extraordinary and impressive manner and if we're seeing that level of resilience now while we're in lockdown there's great hope and optimism I think for the second half of the year when we come out of it the story isn't over across Europe a lot of people are still dependent on government support particularly in in job support schemes we've got higher unemployment than we did pre-pandemic but you know the unemployment levels that we're looking at now are a lot lower than a lot of people would have predicted at the beginning of this crisis. And so broadly speaking, I think the headline numbers are very dramatic and clearly it was an incredibly tough year. And yet European economies and the UK economy have emerged relatively resiliently and are are hoping for a much better second half of 2021 and 2022. And and we see GDP returning to pre-pandemic levels for both in the early part of 2022.
3: I'm wondering how things are across the pond, stateside, Ryan. I mean, are you feeling cautiously optimistic?
4: Well, many of the factors that James and Liz were just talking about are also very relevant for the United States. And it's clear that the path of the economy will be heavily dependent on just how quickly households are able to go back to traveling, domestic activities, leisure activities, going to restaurants, this sort of thing. But there's this other source of uncertainty, which is the U.S. fiscal policy experiment, Mm. similarly to other economies, the level of output in the U.S. ended up falling very, very sharply in the first half of 2020, but it recovered a great deal of that loss by the end of the year. Uh, Maybe about three quarters of the initial decline was recovered even in the second half of of last year. And that was in huge part because of the massive support from fiscal policy stimulus, uh, particularly transfer payments to households and to businesses. And what that resulted in was uh, consumer spending actually in the aggregate falling by less than we might have anticipated. Now, that consumer spending was very differentiated. And so the key question this year is going to be how that kind of plays out. How does the reconfiguration of goods and services spending for the medium term play out? And also, we can see that fiscal policy is transitioning to the medium term. It's transitioning to what we know will be a different economy than, than what we had in the United States. Uh, before the pandemic, and that's why the new fiscal policy focus is less on these uh, direct payments and transfers, it's very much more focused on investments. Big infrastructure investments are being proposed in the United States, and that's meant to set the stage for a long period of growth.
3: We can't have this conversation though without acknowledging the fact that you've gone through uh, an incredible election process, and of course the Biden administration have come into play. Has that changed the landscape?
4: Well, I think it's been very important because it just has happened along this similar timeline where we were dealing with uh, the effects of the pandemic. And again, you know, it's been this uh, very, very favorable kind of developments in terms of vaccination progress that has been the first and, and primary focus of the Biden administration. And at the same time, we've seen it's been focused on not only the pandemic, but dealing with the direct and immediate economic harms that have come from the massive loss of employment that we saw last year and the related loss of incomes. Uh, So that's been the emergency firefighting, if you like. And now it's about turning to the medium term, it's about boosting the productive capacity of the United States. Uh, The Biden administration is very focused on big public sector investments, roads, bridges, ports, but also very much a focus on green technologies and setting the stage for, again, the kind of the future shape of the US economy.
1: No, uh, indeed. Well, it's really interesting hearing what you three have said. Are we thinking that that is very much mirrored in what we're seeing happen and the trend that is evolving in Asia?
5: Very much so. So this region has really been extraordinarily resilient. If you think of what, what occurred, we had an outbreak of a virus, we had collapsing GDP initially last year, but we really bounced back very quickly. And I think by and large, Really, the verdict is that these economies acquitted themselves very well. And we've been in most economies quite successful in actually containing the virus in the first place. Now, this came at a cost in terms of restricting travel, for example, but by and large, uh, we've been managing to keep the virus more at bay than in many other parts of the world. So that's really testimony to the resilience of the region. Now, when we think about the coming two years, I think you're right that policymakers are already thinking about how to lay the foundations for a lasting recovery. And we saw this slight shift here in policy focus, like in the US, what Ryan was mentioning, towards now putting fiscal resources towards infrastructure, towards reforms in order to not just throw money at the problem, if you will, but really think about how do we get out of this deep recession on a sustained basis? China is a case in point where we saw enormous amount of investment and money being mobilized into infrastructure into high technology just to build the next growth drivers. But it's not just China. It's in Southeast Asia, for example, in, in Indonesia. We've now really started to develop new industries. Indonesia is looking to become the leader in electric vehicle battery manufacturing globally. And that's all been catalyzed by the pandemic because it really forced governments to take that extra step to revive growth.
1: I'd love to get an understanding of the impact that has been felt to small and medium-sized businesses from you all and and really what your predictions are for them moving forward. Fred?
5: Well, it's been tough on the small and medium-sized enterprises in particular, and I think that's a global trend whereby larger corporations had had better access to resources to really stay in business, to gain market share. But we also be mindful of the fact that many small and medium-sized enterprises in Asia, at least, are sort of in the small retail space, and that's something that was particularly hard hit. On the other hand, we also have enormous supply chains here, where small, and medium-sized companies have a quite large involvement in that space. They've actually been doing quite well. It's more in the hospitality and retail space, particularly tourism. In Thailand, tourism makes up more than 12% of the economy, and tourism collapsed by 98%. That obviously has some ripples. Uh, One last point I would make is that we have seen, even among small and medium-sized companies, enormous amount of resilience here, and uh, partly because governments have helped through loan programs in many economies to make liquidity available. banking sector has kind of rallied and helped to support SMEs. So I think we can, despite the challenges, talk again about the resilience even of the SME sector during this pandemic in Asia.
1: Liz, I'd, be, I'd love to get your insights on this in terms of the impact that SMEs have experienced and crucially what your prediction might be in terms of what's going to happen tomorrow and the next few months and the year ahead.
0: Sure. Well, I'll come back to what seems to be becoming the buzzword of this conversation, which is resilience. You know, if we look at the company liquidation numbers, they are extraordinarily low given the year that we've just had. And I think after a slightly difficult, uncertain, twitchy start, the support from the government and the Bank of England uh, really has been game changing. So I think 45 billion pounds of bounce back loans have been issued. I think they were life saving in many instances. Small and medium-sized businesses have also been big takers up of the uh, job retention scheme. So I think 4 million people on that scheme at the peak were employed by companies which employ 50 people or less. It's still 2.5 million now. Look, it's going to be a challenging year for SMEs, no doubt. We don't know what we're going into in the second half of the year. The surveys suggest great optimism. But of course, these companies have taken on a lot of new debt. They are looking for it to be a very strong summer. They've still got people on the job retention scheme. They've got questions to answer about when and if that government support is withdrawn. Can I afford to keep all these people on? And unfortunately, some of those jobs are likely to go. So there's definitely challenges, even with a strong economic rebound. But yeah, broadly speaking, it's been a picture of incredible resilience. And there is support continuing to come through. From the government. So, for example, in the budget on the 3rd of March, the Chancellor announced a new scheme, uh, the super deduction, whereby businesses investing in new plants and machinery uh, can deduct up to 130% of the value of that. Against their taxable income, so that's a real, really generous uh, policy to try and stimulate business investment. There's also kind of support for companies hit by Brexit and, and and various other things. So companies will be obviously keen to see that government support isn't withdrawn all in one go in a kind of cold turkey cliff edge moment. But as long as it does continue to be provided and we have a good summer for demand and and, and a good economic rebound in general, then I think you know the future is a lot brighter than I think anyone could have predicted it would be this time last year.
1: James, you talked about this at the start. And I just want Ryan to pick up on this because I'd love to get a perspective on consumer behavior. What's your view, Ryan, on where this is heading in the US and what the space is going to look like?
4: Yeah, that's super interesting because you know it has transformed and it looks like it's about to transform right back. Yeah, this goes back to what we've been talking about with this massive divergence between consumer spending on goods versus services. And, you know, the good spending has been very broad-based. Households have been, in the United States, they've been buying, of course, basic necessities like food, but also uh, what you might consider somewhat more discretionary purchases, electronics, of course, home furnishings. So it's been right across the board. And now we're about to see what the effects will be with economic reopening on those services activities. Again, households going out to all of the leisure and hospitality establishments that they've been staying away from for the past year. And what does that mean to what was previously very robust goods spending? Do we actually see a bit of a cooling off in in some of those factors? And it also goes back to this U.S. policy experiment that I've been talking about, this massive fiscal transfers, which have been both spent and saved, right? It hasn't been a uniform story. It's clear that, that many households have reacted very fast to these successive rounds of economic impact payments, and that really shows how important and how uh, necessary they've been for supporting consumption. But on the other hand, a, a sizable portion of those payments have been saved. And in this case, that raises even more questions about what the outlook will look like. But we do know that consumer behavior can change very quickly assuredly we're probably more likely to see a pickup in domestic travel and domestic spending before we can start thinking about a broad-based revival in international spending. But either way it's going to be a very nuanced picture and uh, we're right on the cusp of of 2021 revealing a lot about the medium-term trajectory for uh, what we can expect from the consumer over the years ahead.
3: Yeah it's going to be fascinating isn't it to see how that evolves. Uh, James your thoughts on this?
4: It's
2: interesting because we've seen this really strong consumer goods spending in the course of 2020 and so far in 2021. And the question is how much of that spending is on things that are one-offs and how much of it is repeated? And I think this is going to be the big determinant of how much of these consumer trends hang around. A lot of those purchases are one-offs. And if you look at the countries where we get this breakdown in data, some of the things where you're seeing the biggest percentage growth increase in spending is on things like bikes or pleasure boats or things like that. These are very much not things you buy on a regular basis. And actually, as you get into 2021, actually, what happens if we've just front loaded a lot of spending on a lot of things? Well, actually, you could see a really quite dramatic change in consumer spending patterns in the course of the next 12 months. And actually, it may not be until 2022 or 2023 where we can actually get a sense of where the global consumer sits of where people like to spend their money in a post-pandemic world.
1: What's your view on how consumer behavior, well, not just consumer behavior, but all of our behavior has changed in the last 12 months?
0: Of course, we're spending much more online and not just those of us who were already buying things online, but actually older people who maybe did the vast majority of their shopping in person, they are now spending online and that's unlikely to go back to where it was once the pandemic's over. While we're working from home, we are spending more in our local shops, so our corner shops and our nearby high streets, as opposed to out-of-town retail parks or town centres and that kind of thing. And then finally, we're spending less in cash. We are spending more in uh, contactless payments. And these are all things that I think don't go into reverse after the pandemic. Now, what we're spending on may go into reverse, but the way we are spending has changed probably for good.
1: Let's talk about the supply chain, Fred. And I think it's really important that we have this conversation in terms of you know the latest shift for supply chain in terms of small and medium enterprises. I mean, what's your take on that?
5: Let me perhaps quickly also just refer back to what we just heard about, the spending among Western consumers being now on goods over the past year. Those goods actually came from Asia, a lot of them. But of course, if that spending is being unwound, there might also be a bit of a hit to Asian exports. Now, when it comes to supply chains, there's a lot been written about, about how they've become under stress over during the pandemic. We would take probably a slightly different view, and that is that, We've seen extraordinary supply chain resilience, actually, across the region, despite the fact that travel was almost completely shut down, that we had a pandemic in all these countries, that we had local lockdowns that prevented workers from going to factories. Asia was still able to produce a lot of the goods despite these headwinds, and in fact, delivered much more than it ordinarily would. So in many ways, supply chains have actually withstood the test. Now, that's not to say that there aren't strategic issues coming through. There's certainly a movement of some supply chains moving from China into Southeast Asia. Uh, that's a long-term trend. There's some of the supply chains move back to the Western world because wages are rising here. But in the near term, actually, supply chains have been quite resilient. We tend to think of Asia as being dominated by large multinational companies that exports good from Asia to the West. The reality is different on the ground. Really, the the beating heart of Asia's uh, supply chains are small and medium-sized enterprises, and that is an open playing field. And I would go as far as saying that many Western SMEs who tend to generally think only about their own economy should maybe think more about also venturing out and kind of joining the supply chain process in Asia as well. We have enormous yeah. amounts of experience with bringing uh, Western companies of smaller sizes to Malaysia, to Vietnam, et cetera, to join that broader supply chain ecosystem that's still very vibrant out here.
1: We're having this conversation, of course, in a virtual space. Technology has had a huge impact on everything that we do. James, I'm keen to find out from you if you think that the advancement of technology is here to and what kind of impact that's had on global economy
2: young people across the world use technology so much more than older generations, be it in terms of shopping, entertainment, communication, everything like that is just complete chalk and cheese between generations. And essentially what you've got over the next decade is this rapid change in the global population that's going to push these trends much, much harder. And also we're probably going to see on the other side of that more and more businesses automating processes, trying to cut costs, trying to be more efficient. And all of those things together, I think are really, really good news for the world because they're all efficiency gains but they come at a cost. There's jobs challenges out there in terms of the cost of putting this investment in in the first place. And these are things that businesses are going to have to think about much more. We're going to see much more of a digital economy going forwards.
1: Spread opportunities and advancements of technology are really quite key to this. How do you think SMEs can capitalise on this moving forward?
5: Technology levels the playing field. So it means that actually once you spread technology, it allows smaller companies to compete with the big guys, go to the other side of the world and set up operations and be able to connect those. So that's, I think, true in manufacturing. But one area where I think we're going to see an even bigger revolution is in exports and trade of services. And that's where SMEs really can step up because we've now become much more used to consuming services online. And that means really that we're not just expanding the playing field for manufacturing companies, but we're also really expanding dramatically the playing field for services companies. And and actually, most SMEs are still in the services sector And there's a lot been written about the end of globalization, and so that may be true when it comes to trade relative to the global economy, but in services, we haven't really scratched the surface of the potential of globalizing our supply or demand, and and I think that's an area where SMEs can really play a very large role indeed.
3: I'm going to throw this out to all of you and really get your insights on this. Ryan, I'd love to see your perspective really on what advice you can give regarding financial risks in the US?
4: Well, I think the the key is that there are going to be developments that are going to be important to watch going forward. We've already seen a pretty significant increase in longer term interest rates since the beginning of this year. And of course, in some ways, that's a positive development because it's reflecting increased economic optimism. But at the same time, it creates real financial difference for both households and businesses that rely on the cost of funding. And this is going to be something that'll be important uh, because policymakers have been doing everything they can. I've talked about the, the massive fiscal policy response. And also on the monetary policy side, the Central Bank of the United States has committed to keeping its policy quite accommodative. And so this is something that's going to be a little bit of a uh, push-pull as the year progresses. Uh, we've already seen, for example, that the housing market in the United States, which has been a real source of strength over the past year, surprising resilience, has actually uh, perhaps started to show some signs of reacting to that increase in longer-term rates and demand, which was quite strong and is still quite strong, Some has shown some signs of cooling off. So again, nothing ever goes in a straight line. And that just means that uh, businesses are going to have to keep an eye on many different things simultaneously.
3: I'd love to get perspective from Fred on Hong Kong and Asia, really, with the financial risks. So what can you share with us on your tips, Fred?
4: As I mentioned,
5: it's actually been a year of extraordinary resilience. If you would told me I, I, over a year ago that we see GDP collapse by, you know, in some countries by double digits, and yet the financial system remains intact and everything Continues to function uh, in a reasonably uh, straightforward manner. I would have thought, well, you know, this this is impossible. But actually, it did. It was possible because, in part, because of course, policymakers have been so active, so aggressive, in shoring up financial systems, providing liquidity. And that's really backstop everything. Uh, The challenge, I think, now will be over the next uh, year or so, will be to wean ourselves off from this very extraordinary loose monetary setting. And, And as Ryan mentioned, in the US, already interest rates are rising a little bit. That will also transpire in other parts of the world as economies recover. And that's a slight headwind. But then again, it's offset also by better economic activity. So broadly speaking, we're fairly comfortable with financial risk. Uh, One thing that has kind of come back in the last two months is financial or exchange rate volatility, because as US interest rates go up, it does tend to strengthen the US dollar and introduces uh, volatility, but nowhere near as much as we saw during the global financial uh, crisis.
3: Steady as you go, I think, right? Steadying that ship and just sort of navigating uncharted waters of Brexit. Yeah, the financial risk when we think about the UK and Europe here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Brexit is a classic example of investors hating uncertainty more than anything else, because actually we had yeah five years worrying about Brexit. You know, is it going to be a no deal? Are we going to have a knife edge vote for this? And then when it happened, which is obviously, you know, for real, at the end of the transition period on the 1st of January 2021, the markets have only done well, they've gone up. Sterling has risen through 2021, even though the impact of Brexit is absolutely real. And it was for our money, a relatively hard Brexit, it has had a very real impact on UK exporters and and companies. But yeah, for the markets, actually, the fact the uncertainty has gone, the risk of a no deal and not knowing what's going to happen, uh, that's really been enough for them. So, uh, you know, Brexit is still having a meaningful impact for the UK's companies, those who are exporting, particularly to the EU, but it has also got very much wrapped up in everything else that's going on so how do you demarcate between what's the Brexit impact and what's the pandemic and what's the lockdown and what's the stockpiling and, and try to you know decompose it all it's, it's very very hard and I think it'll probably take some years but suffice to say markets don't seem worried about it anymore. James a
3: have got one for you I've been told about your incredible future gazing insights so no pressure here but we really would love to know what big bets that you can share with us at all today.
2: What I can tell you is is the two things the pandemic has really shown us is don't underestimate how quickly things can change and also don't estimate how much things can change. And and the two things I'm talking about here is a couple of things that Liz mentioned earlier in terms of that online shopping side of the economy. I would be very surprised if by 2030, we're looking at a world, particularly in the developed world, where we're spending maybe 50% of our our consumption is, is online in one way, shape or form. But also don't underestimate how quickly cash can disappear. No, it's happened in the course of, of 2020 and 2021 in the likes of the UK and in parts of the world where cash usage was already falling. But I think in other parts of the world where cash usage today is extremely high. So in many parts of the emerging world, in the likes of Germany and Japan and Italy, where cash usage is high, the pandemic is a trigger here. And suddenly, you're going to get in the course of the next few years, businesses are going to stop accepting cash payments, cash is going to collapse in terms of usage. I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years time, we're looking at a world where cash accounts for maybe even 10-15% of global transactions, when today in much of the world, it's well over 50%. And I think that sort of massive transformation is something that we're on the path to do. And it's something that will have a big impact for businesses all over the world.
3: That's all we've got time for today. This session has absolutely flown by. But to James, ryan liz and to fred thank you so much for sharing your insights with us a great conversation i've taken away really some three three r's robust resilience and recovery and really how we're sort of cautiously optimistic about what lies ahead after what we've all agreed and has been an incredibly challenging time thank you so much for your time today goodbye
0: this has been a special production of our inspiring progressive business mini-series There will be more episodes focusing on a number of different topics, such as starting your green journey, being cyber resilient, and how having a purpose-led mindset could benefit your business. Please listen out for those. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.